Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly look at what's going on in the world of EBM. I'm Dr. Jarvis, Multimedia Editor, and as always, I'm joined by Helen McDonald. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And Joe Ross. Hello, Joe. Hey, Duncan. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Looking forward to getting some answers uh, this month um, because we're coming back to topics that we've talked about in the past. And I think we're kind of left up in the air a little bit. That's uh, vaccines, effectiveness and uh, harms, um, and also uh, GP data. But for a start, let's talk about vaccines. There's been a load of stuff published uh, in the BMJ in the research section in the last month or so. Helen, can you uh, take us through what's what's in there? Yeah, well, there's three studies um, published, which which uh, Joe and I will take you through. Um, and then actually, as you I don't necessarily sit fully with BMJ's research team these days. I'm all about research integrity. So I've been less involved in the decision-making on some of these papers. So I want to ask Joe some questions about... um, Well, Helen, I I can assure you that these were the three best studies because we've got many, many, many more uh, to consider uh, that examine vaccine effectiveness in the real world. So we only picked the best for you to talk about. Yes. So we're talking about vaccine effectiveness in the real world here. And the first study um, to highlight is one from Canada looking at effectiveness in older people um, is one of the angles of this paper. And also looking at um, effectiveness associated with delaying the second dose of the vaccine. And that's obviously a decision that the UK um, uh, vaccine committee advised um, and, and our government proceeded with and it looks like it happened in Canada too but it didn't didn't happen everywhere um, and this study examines the effectiveness of um, mRNA vaccinations so the Pfizer BioNTech one and also Moderna against symptomatic infection hospital admission and death and there was a delay typically between the first and second dose of 16 weeks, which obviously differs from the manufacturer's instructions. And they found that um, both of the uh, vaccines were, were highly effective against symptomatic infection and the other severe outcomes. Um, and interestingly, that the vaccine effectiveness of one dose was lower, as you might have predicted, particularly for older people and adults um, shortly after the first dose. So the authors thought that this might provide some evidence that delaying the second dose might be a kind of good idea, particularly in lower risk groups. Joe, tell us about the next one. Sure. So actually, the next one is this uh, Brazilian study in adults over the age of 70. And one of the things that makes this study more unique than some of the others is that it's looking at the CoronaVac, the, the vaccine that was uh, designed and manufactured in China. There's much less real-world data on this vaccine. What kind of vaccine is it, Joe? Oh, so this is an inactivated whole virus vaccine as opposed to the, an mRNA vaccine. And they did a, a test-negative case control design in the state of uh, Sao Paulo. Uh, when there was actually widespread circulation of the gamma variant. So one of the early variants, not the Delta variant we're seeing sort of around the world more today, uh, but the gamma variant. And, you know, it's interesting. So like other studies we've seen, the first, uh, you know, the effectiveness after a single dose is much lower than after a second. Um, But in this case, the adjusted vaccine effectiveness uh, after two doses more than 14 days later was really 
only about you know 50 percent i think the official number was about 47 percent um and about 55 percent against hospital admission against 60 and 61 percent against death so not nearly the sort of vaccine effectiveness that we've seen for the mRNA vaccines. It did look better when they stratified the analyses by population age. So the youngest age group, ages 70 to 74, uh, the effectiveness was 59% against symptomatic disease and about 80% against admissions and deaths. So it does raise this interesting question when you're uh, looking at, you know, large populations and trying to understand vaccine effectiveness, you know, how, how much is the 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 sort of waning immunity or the sort of the lack of effectiveness in the oldest of the old, um, you know, diminishing the results because here it had a big impact because their study was limited only to people over the age of 70. But of course, that's our most vulnerable population. And the next study sort of continues work in that population. This is a study set in Catalonia in Spain. Um, looking at the first people that were vaccinated there, so people who lived or worked in care homes or healthcare workers, quite quite big numbers. There were 28,000 nursing home residents, 26,000 nursing home staff, um, 60 odd thousand healthcare workers, and they all had the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccination, so the um, messenger RNA one. And the vaccine was associated with um, around an 80 to 91% reduction in SARS-CoV-2 infection in all of those three groups, and greater reductions in hospital admissions and mortality among nursing home residents for up to five months. The up to five months being because that's as far as the data goes rather than it kind of ceases to work um, at that point in time. So maybe we should pause at this point, Joe, and think um, what what have we contributed? What's the BMJ contributed to scientific knowledge uh, adding these <laughs> three little papers um, out into the world? Well, I, I, you know, I actually think, you know, papers like these, and, and of course there have been others, have been enormously helpful in helping to characterize the effectiveness and the safety of these vaccines. Because, you know, for the most part, you know, we, we got some early trials. Those trials, though, were, while large, it tended to be rather short in duration. Um, and they were of a, you know, very controlled environment. And, it, you know, of course, you know, the rubber hits the road when you're trying to give the, you know, vaccines to the broader population to try to see what's going to happen. And, you know, vaccine performance is really dependent, uh, you know, on the context in which it's administered, the populations to which it's administered, the rate uh, the, of the infection in the community at that time. And so, you know, this is just helping us, you know, look at the you know, the picture from a lot of different angles, which can only, uh, you know, improve our broader understanding. It and to that point, Joe, that, that point of everything being so variable, one of the things that people might notice when they're reading these papers is that you've got everything in relative terms. And, and normally, although I'm an absolute stickler for trying to um, give some kind of absolute scale here, I think that's one of the things which is um, so challenging and hard about doing that. So we keep kind of hovering. You were saying, Joe, the effectiveness of a lot of these vaccines, with the exception of the of the um, in the Brazilian study that you mentioned, was all hovering around sort of 80, 90 percent. But but that's a that's a relative number. Well, and, you know, the reason for that, of course, is that all these vaccine effectiveness studies are case control designed. Basically, they're self case control. So you don't get 
good estimates of absolute risk when there's a population of people who don't have something, right? So everyone here is getting vaccinated. So you're just talking about the risk pre versus post, right? You're not really giving a population level risk like you would in, you know, like a trial where half the people are getting a placebo and half the people are getting the thing. And then you can see what, well, really, what is the absolute risk reduction? So yeah, it, it's not ideal. Um, and of course, you know, but th that's how these case control uh, studies are designed. And it's interesting to think, because we talk so much about the vaccine trials when they started, and they were this real kind of flagship for something that had gone quite well, I think, in COVID, the um, international response, the fact that there were protocols that could be um, brought up quickly to implement the studies and get the evidence that was needed. Um, it feels like with these studies, with the real world studies, we're now moving into a new phase of how all these vaccine committees around the world are going to be fed with information to tweak their strategies um, vaccinating going forward. And how do you think that's going to go in terms of the evidence that they need and and the kind of coordination of it? Because it's the, the, the study designs are getting more complicated. I mean, we talked you talked about case control. There was, there was a one cohort study in here. I think just kind of trying to weigh up all this real world evidence is inherently more challenging, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's just different methods. So hopefully they'll have people on their committees that understand these more observational designs and approaches. And, you know, there's a reasons for it, though, right? And that's because in the real world, we think these vaccines work. So a population of people who are not getting vaccinated, we think are going to be systematically different uh, for, for in, in ways and reasons because the, the vaccine's widely recommended for everybody of this age group. So if you're not vaccinating something, somebody or somebody's refusing a vaccination, you worry that they're different in some unmeasurable way, which is why they're not included in these studies. So, um, you know, you, you, you hope that, um, you know, the, the committees are going to be able to, you know, leverage these different analytical approaches as they make their decisions. I also think kind of smugly that it's demonstrating which countries have, you know, much better data infrastructure in place, right? You're seeing these studies come from, you know, the UK, Canada, other Norwegian countries. I think we had one from Norway early on that was looking at safety, right? You're not seeing them in the US. <laughs> well, to that end, that actually segues quite nicely into, <laughs> into our final of the vaccine studies, which is not about efficacy, but more about examining um, a harm uh, and looking at the risk of thrombocytopenia and thromboembolism after the first dose of the two vaccines that were most used in the UK uh, as the program got off the ground. So the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine um, and people with SARS-CoV-2 positive testing in those groups. Um, and this is a big UK study. It looks at around 30 million people who were vaccinated between December and towards the end of April 2021. It's uh, a self-controlled case series. So it compares exposed and unexposed time periods in the same patient. And they're looking at thrombocytopenia, um, venous thromboembolic disease, pulmonary embolism, stroke, heart attack, and this rare cerebrovenous sinus thrombosis, which we heard a lot about in, in the media for a time. Um, the way they did it was by linking lots of electronic healthcare records together, including death data from the 
Office for National Statistics, SARS-CoV-2 positive test data and hospital admission data. Um, they found increased risks of bleeding and clotting events that led to hospital admission or death um, were usually shortly after both of the vaccines. Um, and among that vaccinated population, the risks of most of those events were higher and more prolonged after they had an actual SARS-CoV-2 infection. So actually after, had, after they had COVID as opposed to after this vaccination. And that, that sort of sentence has been something which has been, um, I think, giving rise to some queries on social media. So there was a few things here, Joe, that I wondered if you might help us unpick. Um, BMJ.com has a system called Rapid Responses where anyone can leave a message and ask questions. And there's been quite, quite good engagement with this paper online. And a few, few things that I think we might be able to help clear up a bit. Um, one was some people were finding it hard to break down the results by age um, because these kind of big whole population numbers might be quite difficult if you as a person, and I think we're looking in the UK now, at people making decisions about vaccinations, mostly being young people, if um, you're at a particular age group, what are the likely benefits and harms of this vaccination to you? Can you shed any light on the age bands in this research paper? Yeah, well, you know, th this is the challenge with these large database studies. There's just so much information. You you can barely fit it into a, you know, a readable format. So, you know, I, I always, you know, encourage everyone, make sure you look to see if there was a supplement. So this one had one that was three times the length of the paper uh, and included a, a number of tables that provide more granular detail, in, including um, incident rate ratios for these, uh, you know, safety outcomes uh, stratified by age group um, uh, sort of above and below the age of 50. Uh, a lot, and that's all in tables, I think, the table 4A and 4B, um, maybe just 4A and 4B is uh, by sex, but also they have um, crude background rates and other ratios um, in, in table six, I believe, by patient ages stratified into, you know, five-year groups. So there's a, a ton more information that allows you to get at some of the, at least the younger versus older patient population. One of the big things though is even in these massive studies, the number of events is low, so th there are, are restrictions in reporting out, you know, s you know, s uh, s table cells with small numbers because of the, you know, the, the risks to patient privacy, you know, the people in, in these data, uh, a, a risk that maybe we'll talk about a little bit later in relation to some other databases. But but that's why uh, you'll you you won't see uh, data stratified, uh, you know, too too thinly. Mm. And what do you take from their age stratified data? Well, so it's really interesting, of course. So they they don't report the the overall sort of composites uh, in the sense that they they break it down by the thrombocytopenias, the venous thromboembolisms, uh, and the arterial thrombolisms. And I think the most important thing is to look at the incident race ratios um, and if they're consistent, uh, kind of by visual in the two different age groups. And you see, you know, essentially the same patterns that the actual thresholds vary a bit, but you know, you see lower risk ratios prior to vaccine and on day zero, 
um, and you see, you know, the highest risk ratios, one to seven and eight to 14 days uh, for the vaccines, and then it starts to decline a bit. Whereas, um, you know, for the, the, the positive tests, uh, you consistently see uh, the highest risk ratios on day zero, um, and then a li- and as well as on the, the one to seven days after, but in both age groups. So the patterns are the same, even if the absolute risks may differ a bit. It's quite complicated, isn't it, presenting all this data in a way that's digestible? Because when you then, when you're then there at the vaccine center, as I was not that long ago, getting your little patient information leaflet and having um, someone ask for your consent to do the vaccine, the information, like particularly the numbers that you receive, it, it is relatively thin. Um, it, it's kind of, um, I think for for people and especially for young people where the the balance of benefit and harm is likely to be closer it's quite a tough job if you want to go away and research this yourself isn't it i i think so you you know and and i'm not sure that it's really the best use of everybody's time to quote unquote research it yourself right you know we have you know committees of experts who are pouring over data such as these and lots others to try to come to you know policy recommendations for patient populations you know, quite interestingly, you know, different governments may have different policy objectives when they're making their recommendations. Uh, there was actually a nice piece uh, just today on the difference between like a, a country that's trying to get to zero cases or zero deaths versus a country that's really trying to mitigate but prioritizing other things like sending kids to school or, you know, making sure that people are, you know, out and about in the community. So policy goals may be different. But the, the recommendations from the people pouring over the data, the expertise that's going into it, right, you know, that that that, that is, I, I, I am all for citizen science, but I, I, I'm not sure that it's the best use of like anybody's time. <laughs> I'd like these guideline committees that are looking at this evidence and then making their recommendation to do like a nice little nugget. I, I, I think the check. most, the really the most important thing for, you know, quote unquote, the, the citizens, you know, it, to, to, it, or to speak up and say, what are the, the priorities? What are the questions you have? So that the guideline committees can answer those questions as directly as possible based on data, uh, as opposed to trying to go to the, these, these very complicated studies, or even worse, the, the data sources themselves to try to analyze the data without that expertise. Um, and so you want, the, you want the patient perspective informing the questions that are asked. So the final query that was on this paper was around, was sort of around that. What question do you have and can the study answer it? Um, And I was very struck. There was a question uh, on the rapid responses that said, look, the the question that people want answered is, if I do not have the vaccine, what are my chances of getting these bleeding clotting events? If I have the vaccine, what are my chances of getting these bleeding clotting events? And something which I... I think is a fair criticism of this paper is it is a little bit hard to work out if that's what's being shown to you or not. And I ended up in the position of thinking that this paper tells you um, not quite that answer, that it tells you amongst people who had the vaccination and then went on to get COVID um, what what those adverse events rates were like in the context of them having a kind of infection after vaccination. Whereas I think the question which people really want answered is perhaps subtly different to that. What was your position, Joe, reading it? So 
the the information is there it's just so much harder to ascertain in some respects so so it, the in this paper the analyses are primarily focused on the populations of people who got vaccinated the two different vaccines along with people who tested positive even after being vaccinated but you can see deep in buried in the supplemental materials uh in ta- in table six is that where it is um, the crude uh, background rates of these primary and secondary safety outcomes in the patient populations, um, you know, for the different age groups. So you do get a general sense of how common was thrombocytopenia, venous thromboembolism, and arterial thromboembolism in the world pre-COVID and pre-COVID vaccine. And you can then look at those rates against the, the rates that are reported for these patient populations when you get a vaccine or when you get COVID to see just how widely um, different they are or similar, right? Because that, that's how they're arriving at their, their graft risk ratios um, in, in terms of the, their, the absolute risk. And it's why you're seeing, you know, risk that's, very, that's similar, almost exactly the same uh, when you get the vaccine demonstrating their safety, uh, but ratios that are much higher among patients who were infected uh, relative to those background rates. Well, that's interesting. And this paper's only been up online a few days, and I'm sure the authors of the paper will respond to the queries that are online and direct us all to these um, supplementary materials. I hope so. <laughs> there, there's obviously... Uh, out, answer those questions that, um, that our uh, readers have out there. So we'll be talking more about data this time, what's happening to your GP records. Uh, but that's coming up in a moment after this. Do you have time in your day to stay current with the ever-changing medical information needed to treat your patients? With your busy schedule, it can't be much. That's why you need UpToDate. UpToDate provides accurate, evidence-based clinical information and treatment recommendations in an organised and searchable format so you can find answers you can trust quickly and easily. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on UpToDate in their daily practice. Visit go.uptodate.com talk. That's go.uptodate.com talk and use promo code talk to save 25 US dollars on your annual or longer subscription. So Helen, you have been following what's been going on with um, people in England's GP data, the records that are kept in primary care. There was a big controversy about this. Could you kind of get us up to date on where we are with that? Yes. So this is the the GP data for planning and research. And you mentioned controversy, Duncan, and there has been quite a bit of discussion on social media and in the press about this. And I've been trying to get on top of looking at some of those concerns that people have. whether they're founded and and what are the areas that seem to be settled um, and what are less so. Um, So particularly looking at whether the programme is new. um, And I think the bottom line here is that, no, it's not a particularly new programme. It's an evolution of something that's been there for quite some time, but is being expanded. Um, It's somewhat like some other databases which exist um, either in England already um, or elsewhere in the world, uh, big data sets that cover whole populations. 
there have been a con- number of concerns about privacy and security. And that was one of the things that, that Joe was mentioning, particularly for rare outcomes. Um, if you have big data sets, people can still be uh, identifiable. Um, here, there were also more emotive concerns around whether people um, whether people's whole GP records, sort of including the free text and, and comments might be uploaded. And, and that's not the case. Uh, they're looking at coding of diagnoses and tests and treatments and referrals rather than free text notes. The data are going to be pseudo anonymized, which means that information like NHS number and dates of birth and postcodes are removed and replaced by other codes um, before they're shared with NHS digital. But there was broad concern that maybe that wasn't enough. Another problem that was going on was about to what extent people could opt in and out of the system um, and whether the system would somehow keep your data even though you'd opted out. Um, and the NHS Digital have now been clear that you can totally remove the entirety of your record uh, at any time, which has been a useful clarification. Um, and the final thing has been around, uh, I think, access to those data and particularly concerns from um, some campaign groups, um, sometimes from GPs and from some um, groups of patients in the public around particularly commercial access to that data. So you've sort of summarised some of the, the, the queries there. Um, have you been talking to anyone interesting about this, um, researchers or, or patients perhaps? I have, and you can. I've I've written a kind of fuller fuller piece on this, um, and I heard from Professor Kathy uh, Sudlow about the researcher's perspective. But I think I most enjoyed talking to Natalie Banner, who um, works with understanding patient data, um, the Wellcome Trust, about what the public really think about big data collection, which ultimately I think is is really what this is all about. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Um, could you start by just explaining um, what we know about what the public expects in terms of privacy and security of their data? Sure. I mean, it's it's difficult to say what people expect in the first instance, because the challenge we have um, with this program and with the use of data more broadly is that most people don't necessarily know that data from their healthcare records can be used for purposes beyond their care. So, for example, for research and planning without their explicit consent. And they tend to be quite surprised and often a bit shocked when they find out. So they're not necessarily coming to this question with a set of pre-existing expectations. There's more kind of surprise um, questions and sometimes quite a lot of anxiety as well. Uh, But when you do take the opportunity to explain, inform, allow people to ask questions um, about what's going on um, and really find out what people think um, in a bit more of an informed and engaged way, there are certain things that come through consistently across attitudes and engagement research. So the types of things that people are particularly keen to see when it comes to the use of data is first and foremost clarity on that purpose and ensuring that there is a really clear public benefit arising from the use of data. Now, when we say public benefit, of course, it's difficult to say exactly what counts as that. And actually, the National Data Guardian will soon be producing some statutory guidance that should help provide some more clarity on what counts as public benefit. Secondly, a really clear concern about data security uh, and privacy. 
Thirdly, there is a high expectation around transparency. As I said, people don't necessarily know that this is happening uh, with data and they want to see more about what's going on. They want to know that they're, they're interested. There's actually quite a lot of appetite for information about what's happening to this data, how it's being used, who it's benefiting, um, who's making decisions about it and so on. So um, definitely a higher expectation of transparency about what's happening to data and how. And related to that, accountability. If something goes wrong, um, you know, who's being held to account for uh, the management and protection and oversight um, of that data use? That's very helpful. Um, there have been some particular concerns which have been raised um, around who's accessing and under under what circumstances. And I think some of those concerns particularly relate to commercial access and also relate to the concept that the data might be being sold in some way. Can you say anything about what the public um, may think about those concepts? I would caveat uh, my answer by saying um, I don't think there's any such thing as the public. Uh, people's views and experiences vary enormously. Um, but from research that has been done on, on public views and attitudes, um, firstly, data is a very valuable resource. Uh, people don't want to see the NHS being exploited. The only thing worse than selling data is giving it away for free. So this is recognition that there is a there is a value here and it's important to recognise the, the value of that data. Um, but there are, of course, you know, very challenging questions around commercial involvement and what it means to charge uh, and you know, the idea of data potentially being sold to third parties. It's important to note that when we're talking about charging for, for, for data, it is charging for access to data, usually for a specific reason or piece of research. When you say sell data, it suggests that there's a sort of property relation here and that data is being given over to a third party and then you have no further um, control or say and what happens to it. And that's not the case. So I think the narrative around the selling of data can be a bit misleading. Mm. Uh, we know from research that we've done um, about specifically about this question of third party partnerships on health data, that people are generally fine with the NHS benefiting financially. Um, but those health benefits and the benefits back to the system have to always be the main priority. One element of the pause that we're in now with this project um, NHS Digital have said that they want to run a consultation and also do a communication campaign with the public um, and including healthcare professionals as well. Um, if you were NHS Digital, what do you think the priorities are for, for moving that forwards? There's an awful lot to do um, to, to build public confidence, but it's really important to say this has to go beyond NHS Digital. This is not just an issue for NHS Digital uh, to fix. Indeed, they can't because they are part of a system. So this, this covers the Department of Health and Social Care, NHSX, NHS Digital, everyone who is involved in the delivery of care and the research community as well. Um, and, and actually, unless you take that kind of whole system approach, uh, I think you're going to miss opportunities to really um, articulate what the potential benefits are of being able to use data um, for purposes beyond care, but also to be clear about kind of the risks and what it takes to be able to use this data well. So in terms of public confidence, I would say the kind of three critical things are going to be first and foremost, investing in more proactive communications and reactive media responses. So you know, being able to explain the context, what's happening now, what's planned, what's going to change, um, you know, it's appeared that this program is an entirely new process, but actually GP data has been collected and extracted for quite some time. Yes, it's a richer data set. Yes, it's going to be collected um, more frequently, but 
Um, it's not as though we've never been able to use GP data in the past and that you know there are benefits that have come from it. Being clear on the safeguards, access to the data is highly regulated. It's not a free-for-all. Um, and I think that there has been, in the absence of information being forthcoming from, from NHS Digital, NHSX and the government, there has been a vacuum. Uh, and, and that vacuum has unsurprisingly been filled by people saying, we think that there's something going on here. We think that there's you know dodgy dealings, as it were. And there's a certain element of leadership and openness that's required here. You know, spokespeople to engage with the media, engage with journalists, uh, and proactively respond to the concerns that are coming up. Um, you know, putting things on a website is a starting point, but that's definitely not going to be enough. Secondly, there's something very important about explaining what choices people do have. Uh, we do currently have a, a system. It's not an ideal system of opt-out. We have a type one opt-out, which is based at a GPs. And then you have the national data opt-out, which you can register online and applies across the health and care system. Uh, they are different. Uh, we need to be able to explain the difference between those, how they're registered, how they're enacted, what the implications of those opt-outs are. We also need to be clear when it comes to talking about choices. What is the impact of choosing to opt out um, on, on NHS services and planning? People can be very, very generous when it comes to the NHS and, um, and wanting to be altruistic about supporting the service. But none of that has come through um, in, the, in the communications and engagement so far. And I think that the real process here is to kind of co-design some of those communications with patients and the public to make them accessible, ensure that they can answer the questions and concerns people have. Um, and, and because, it, you know, this is a complex area. So explaining those choices uh, is going to be vital. And thirdly, related to what I said about co-creation, embedding citizen views much more substantially in decisions about data. Uh, and actually, in some cases, you do have uh, public or lay participants in decision making bodies. But again, not clear um, how those are really being embedded. And, and there's not a lot of information available about that. So involving people in an ongoing way in decisions about data more public representation on mechanisms such as iGuard, the NHS digital independent group advising on the release of data. Um, and there is a public expectation. Our, our research from back from last year um, found around 74% of people believe the public should be involved in decisions about NHS, how NHS data is used. So that needs to A, happen and B, be open and obvious so that people can know that there is a degree of public involvement in these decisions rather than it seeming all like something that's happening uh, behind closed doors without anyone knowing about it. And finally, Natalie, what, what are your kind of hopes or fears for the project more broadly? Um, I think I'd rather talk about opportunities and risks because I feel that might maybe slightly less emotive. Opportunities, I think there's a huge opportunity to bring a more consistent approach to how GP data is accessed, managed and accessed um, for research and planning because at the moment uh, there's quite a patchwork of, of systems and different ways to access that data. So consistency uh, will be critical and that will be helpful for public confidence and indeed at being able to access this data you know we've seen from the pandemic um, the value of being able to use data but also where it's patchy it's inaccurate it's incomplete having a better picture of, uh, of, of primary care data across the board you know could enable us to have a much uh, more refined response not just to this pandemic but generally managing public health and commissioning of services as well 
And in terms of the challenges and the risks, there is a real risk of further damage to public trust uh, from continuing to get this badly wrong. Um, you know, if you if you detriment public trust, that could mean um, damage to the, the clinician-patient relationship if people feel like they can't be open and honest with their clinicians about what they're experiencing. And that's really catastrophic. And secondly, if there's an increase in opt-outs because people don't trust the system and what's happening to their data, then the NHS and those it works with are going to struggle to plan, develop services and lead vital research if they don't have data that is truly representative of the populations they serve. So certainly um, high risks as well. One point that Natalie brought up there was about, um, you know, people withdrawing from their data and the fact that that um, might affect uh, the integrity of the data and things. And Joe, this is a big problem um, in real world data sets all the time. How do you as a researcher deal with that? Well, it's a hard it's hard to deal with. I mean, one of the great values of the sort of large national registries of population level data from Scandinavian countries and the UK and other places is that everybody's in. And so when you're running analyses with those data, you don't have to worry, quote unquote, about what your denominator is and who it represents. It's everyone. When people start to remove themselves, if it happens in any substantial number, you know, I don't know what the threshold is. I think statisticians would say um, you would, would differ in what they would say is 1% is a 0.1%. But, you know, if a lot of people start to pull themselves out of those data um, for, you know, for whatever reason, but it, it's going to change sort of who do those data represent? You know, what what is different about the people who've removed themselves versus left themselves in? Uh, beyond knowing where on the internet to to register to get your name off, <laughs> um, and so you just you have to think through what those biases may represent. That doesn't mean the data aren't useful. Uh, it just means that they are a little bit more biased than they were before in terms of what was in there, or perhaps a little bit less useful in terms of the gross generalization. Well, that GP data wasn't entirely COVID-related, but it is kind of COVID-adjacent because it came out of uh, out of that, as we'll have, you'll have heard in the last Talk Evidence episode. Um, but we want to bring you things that aren't COVID-related at all. Uh, and uh, Helen, you have been looking at this new state-of-the-art review that's that we just published um, on cardiovascular care of older adults. It's a very uh, standard clinical topic it is i can link it to covid because (laughs) (laughs) mostly because i think clinicians are sort of now in a position where covid has been going on for so long but we also have to get on with um you know other aspects of care and there have been a lot of people who who maybe haven't um seen their doctor for a while for one reason or another um might have chronic disease uh checks which are outstanding um, and and needing doing medication reviews and things like that. And I came across this and just, I mean, it's huge. You should should go away and read it in whatever spare time you have as a clinician, but it did include, I think, some really interesting points for me. I think uh, one concept, which I hadn't fully grasped in my mind and 
Joe, you can tell me if this is an American word, but the general concept of geroscience, I've never heard that word before. <laughs> and it sounded like a wonderful US English type of word um, aiming to get at the in intersection of aging biology, sort of normal aging, I guess, and disease. Um, and highlighting that in the context of cardiovascular disease, these pathophysiologic changes, which I guess encompasses both of those ideas at, at that stage of life towards the end of life, do provoke cardiovascular disease as well as other diseases and those classic geriatric um, syndromes of frailty and cognitive impairment and incontinence and falls that um, are, are very familiar to people who care for for those groups of adults. I'll just say, Helen, I mean, yes, geroscience, it does seem, you know, whatever that, I'll make up another word for you, which is what I loved about this paper, which is that it's geropractice. Geropractice, <laughs> I like that. Almost like general practice. Well, they're talking about, you know, cardiovascular care of older adults, but really this paper is just great in terms of its description of the care of older adults and all the things that you have to think about as a practitioner when you're making decisions for an older adult patient, like multimorbidity and polypharmacy and deep prescribing and how to manage people's meds and falls and frailty and cognitive decline and decision making. And um, th th that's what makes to me a, a must read for anyone who's. who's it is good. And I, I wrote down um, I wrote down some notes. So these these were my action points. And as you know, I'm a resting GP. That's how I describe myself because I'm too <laughs> early to retire, but I'm currently too busy to do any practice. <laughs> So, so this is what I would have done, I think, um, were I still there, was what I thought was useful was looking at some of that evidence around what can you actually do differently. And one thing that I thought was quite useful in this paper was talking about mapping out all of the conditions. This is just kind of getting yourself a list and understanding which are causing the most problems from the patient's perspective at this point in time. And that being a useful exercise, particularly to try and set the scene for kind of making the trade-offs about what you're going to prioritize at the moment, because I think it can feel quite intimidating when you're sort of reviewing everything um quite intimidating for the patient and and quite intimidating for you as the clinician and just having um this suggested from qualitative work that it can be useful to identify a single priority mattering most of the patient at that moment of time and making that your focus something uh, around their function around their priorities rather than around a specific disease um, and the other things I think I found useful were trying to introduce conversations around prognostication, particularly around things like life expectancy and trying to use that um, not to be morbid, but to help to weigh up um, the sort of clinically relevant benefits and harms that might result from decisions that you're making or interventions that you're weighing up um, routinely trying to consider quality of life and treatment burden and their motivation um, for those things I think was was useful yeah I, could, I couldn't agree more yeah no that, that that's sort of the importance of setting goals and priorities is, is critical particularly when people are weighing so many different I think, treatment decisions. I think the other thing which can feel hard is this kind of shared decision-making um, concept, which I think everyone wants to buy into, but can be quite challenging. And something that I found reassuring from this paper was that it suggested that even if you don't get there, which sometimes I feel is, is the reality, um, 
attempting to do shared decision making does improve people's knowledge of their disease, um, their knowledge of the treatment options, their participation in care um, and their satisfaction. And is likely, it said in this paper, they didn't delve deep into the evidence to mean that um, patients and clinicians are more likely to be aligned in their view of a way forwards. So I felt that even if you don't do shared decision making perfectly, it seems like it would have some useful side effects. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I, I actually have great admiration for the authors. I think they're trying to snooker a whole bunch of cardiologists into be, doing better geriatrics. <laughs> is, that, mm-hmm. is that what you think the uh, under, <laughs> undertones of this is? <laughs> Great. Well, that's a nice bit of sneaky patient care at the end there. Helen, Joe, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. We'll be back in another month. Uh, so until then, have a look out for our other episodes. They're all available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Subscribe so you don't miss out on our next one. Until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And from me. Take care out there.